I'm always grateful, Lord, for that passage in Lamentations 3, where he says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Christian life is not an easy life, but it's the best life. It's a hard life, but that's because you are training us. And you've got us in the gymnasium, and you've got us working out so that we can build spiritual muscle, become mature men. You're our personal God, Savior, and trainer. And sometimes, Lord, you put us to, through many repetitions that wear us out and fatigue us. And sometimes, uh, to change metaphors, we get hit not by one wave, but two or three, sometimes four, sometimes five. And it's all we can do to catch our breath. And we're trying to uh, keep our heads above water. And we get fatigued and we get worn out. And it seems to never end. <clears throat> and when we get fatigued, the battle is to maintain hope, to not lose hope. So this I recall to mind. We have to think. We cannot live off how we feel. We have to get above our feelings. We have to get a grip on our feelings. Our well-being in life cannot be gauged by how we feel. But we have to think. We have to grab ourselves and put ourselves up against the wall and maybe sometimes just slap ourselves out of the fear and out of the panic and out of the hopelessness and get a grip and say this I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. And what do we recall to mind? That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You know where we are. You know what's going on. You know that we're fatigued. You know that we're worn out. But there's a reason you're allowing us to go through this stuff. It's because you love us. You want to bring something better. We just can't see what it is. This I recall to mind that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. It would be a good exercise before we go to sleep tonight to ponder the mercies we've received today. It would give us hope for tomorrow. It would help us to sleep better. It may have been a tough day, but there was still mercy. It was there. We just got to look for it. And then we need to be grateful and thank you for it. We need to name them, enumerate them. That will help us to sleep and rest. And then when we wake up, it starts all over again. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases.
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We're up and down. We're all over the map. You're steadfast. And we love you for that. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are working our way through this study on the Ten Commandments. And I said the first night that I was not going to predict how long this study would go. I, in, in all honesty, was sort of thinking that I, I charted out how many weeks we had, and I thought we can get it all 10 in. But the thing about these 10 commandments is there, there is so much to them. In previous weeks, I have brought with me Wayne, uh, Wayne Grudem's um, massive volume that he just finished this summer, that just came out this summer, called, uh, I think it's called Christian Ethics. It's based on the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are the basis and foundation of all ethics and all law for all people and all cultures and all time. And immediately we say, well, what about the person that doesn't have a Bible that doesn't know Christ? Well, God has written his law and his commands on the heart, Romans 1 and Romans 2. The moral law is for all people. The moral law is forever. The moral law is the Ten Commandments. And these commandments are all-encompassing. For instance, when we get to the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, when we get there in the year 2023, because I'm going to slow down and take some time, not that long, but I am going to take some time. When we get to that commandment, it was interesting because I think I mentioned this on a previous night. Grudem's um, work on thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, see, adultery, you have to be married to commit adultery. So it covers marriage. It would also cover divorce. It would also cover remarriage. It would also cover, well, a number of different issues. Grudem's pages on thou shalt not commit adultery is 196 pages. And I've read it, and it's all pertinent, and he doesn't repeat himself, and it's all very practical and speaks to where we are and what we're dealing with in this culture. I think I made the statement last Wednesday night that we've been on the fifth commandment, honor thy father and mother, that I was going to get to the sixth commandment tonight. But as I thought about it and as I worked on it, I thought, no, we're going to spend at least one more night on the fifth commandment. And indeed, that's what we are going to do. Last week, we talked about the importance, you see, when, when you talk about honor thy father and mother, and you look at the different commentaries, and you look at the different perspectives of uh, theologians and pastors who have written on this, uh, several of them, 
the heading above, thou shalt, thou, um, you shall honor your father and mother. The heading above it is respecting authority. And what we have said over the last few weeks is that the family is the central foundational institution that God created. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. You're talking early Genesis chapters here. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. This is Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, the family is foundational. Absolutely foundational. The family, and we've said this before, the family is the first school. The family, because children are to be educated. Uh, the family is the first government because for a family to function, there, has to, there can't be anarchy, there has to be government. So God instituted a father and a mother and there are children that has to be governed. God's given us principles in his word as to how a family is to be governed. It's the first church. Children are to learn about God from their parents. Gary Thomas, in his book, Sacred Marriage, tells the story of just a night at the dinner table, typical night, he's got a whole bunch of kids, and you know, they're showing up, they're trying to get clean, kids cleaned up, dinner's about ready, you know the chaos when you got small kids. And he's got a little baby girl who's just learning to talk probably 18 months to two years old. And she's in her high chair and everybody's eating and she's eating and they pray and they pray, he prays and thanks God for the meal and says in Jesus name we pray. And his little baby girl in the high chair looks at him and points at him and says, Jesus. And he said, no, sweetheart, I'm not Jesus, I'm daddy. She said, Jesus. He says, no, I'm, I'm daddy. And then it hit him. I'm Jesus to her. I'm God to her. You see that little baby girl? <laughs> A father is a picture of God. A, a father is a picture of Jesus. Whew. That's a heavy responsibility. Isn't it? But in her little mind, and, and she's right, her daddy's representing Jesus. That family is the first church you're the first pastor. This is serious stuff. And this is where little children are taught the most important things in all of life, on all subjects. It's central 
and it's foundational. And they must be taught to respect authority because if they don't learn to be, to be respectful of authority and obey authority, then when they get into other institutions, the church, the nation, the school, if they haven't learned to submit to authority in the home, there's going to be all kinds of heartbreak outside the home. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. That would be a husband and wife. It's an overwhelming task. We can't do it by ourselves. So unless the Lord builds the house, our efforts are futile. We said last week that a father must have a long-term plan for his family. And I kind of want to hitchhike on that tonight. We're going we're gonna to narrow in a little bit more on fathering because fathering is so critical. Think about that, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. That would be a husband and wife. It is very, very difficult for a wife to raise children and to build a house by herself. We have a great appreciation for single mothers. Some of you were raised by single moms. Perhaps some of you in this room had a mom who would work not one job, but two jobs, maybe three jobs, just to put food on the table. She is doing the work of two people by herself. So she has your highest admiration, your, your, your utmost respect, because she's doing the work of two people. Ideally, two people are doing the work, not one. So tonight we're going to look at three, I got three points. Here's the first one. We're going to look at the priority of constructive fathering. The priority of constructive fathering. Secondly, we're going to look at <clears throat> the corruption of fathering. When you get away from God's moral law, you're in trouble. When you get away from what God says, every nation has laws. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any nation. When we move away from what God says, we get in trouble. Personally, we get in trouble in our homes. We get in trouble in our Nations, it used to be, some of us are old enough, some of us are old enough to remember when the Ten Commandments were posted in every classroom in America. And every child in America knew that there was a God, and they were reminded every day when they saw those Ten Commandments, they knew that there was a God, and they knew that they were accountable to that God. There weren't a lot of school shootings back then. But there are now. Because we've lost our minds and we've outlawed God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I saw a thing this morning, <clears throat> Stephen Hawking, who died in March, uh, 
the Cambridge professor, some say the most brilliant man in the world, written a number of books. His latest book came out this week, and they're publicizing it. And some of his assistants finished the manuscript. It was almost done. But really the core idea of the book is that there is no God and that he does not govern the universe. It's the last thing Hawking wanted to say. He doesn't believe that anymore. <laughs> and we can kind of chuckle at that, but that's tragic because he knew the whole time that he was there. He knew it. Everyone knows he's there. Romans 1. God has revealed the truth of himself through the creation, and he's written the truth of himself on every human heart. But we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Even though his divine attributes have been clearly seen, we suppress the truth. Why? We want to be our own gods. And if he's there, we have to bow the knee to his authority. And we don't want to do it. The priority of constructive fathering. Secondly, the corruption of fathering. And this is what happens when we leave God's moral law and his commands. And then thirdly, we'll look at the correction to fathering. So back to... My first point, the priority of constructive fathering. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians 6, 1, 4. Now, normally, we go to Exodus 20 because that contains the Ten Commandments along with, uh, it's restated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But let's go to Ephesians 6 because basically what you have in Ephesians 6 is that the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the New Testament is going to um, give instruction based on this fifth commandment. He's actually going to quote it, Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. That's Exodus 20, 12, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Every family has an atmosphere. An atmosphere. Restaurants are big in atmosphere. Uh, on a special occasion, an anniversary or something, Wives appreciate going out. You'll take your wife to a, a nice restaurant. Now, guys, we have a little different perspective typically on restaurants. Because when we think restaurants, we think food. But oftentimes wives, if it's a special occasion, they're not only thinking food, but they're thinking ambiance. I looked that word up. It, it means expensive. Guys tend not to really 
care too much about ambiance. There used to be a restaurant down off Northwest Highway and uh, Sherry Lane. You know what I'm talking about, vice versa. That's amazing. I've told this story before. Uh, obviously, I've told it too many times. <laughs> but there was a restaurant for years called Vice Versa. I, I don't think it's around anymore. Uh, Vice Versa had no ambiance. But it had unbelievable food. It, it was kind of, uh, well, let's put it this way. Had had old Formica tables and those red booths. You remember those things? Probably put in in the 50s. And uh, the, the upholstery was torn and had stuffing coming out of it. The Formica was stained. Uh, but about 11.15, they started lining up and it would go out the door and down the sidewalk and that was good food. Not a lot of ambiance. It's just not restaurants that have food, homes have atmosphere. The atmosphere in a home, the, the, the atmosphere in the home in which you were raised was either constructive or destructive. What I mean by that, in your home, People were either built up or people were torn down. You either look back on your home with fond memories or it's really hard to even think about. The father determines the atmosphere of the home. And you may say, well, I didn't even know my dad. My dad left. He determined the atmosphere of your home. It was probably all you could do to make it, and it was all your mom could do to put food on the table. Every man who marries is building a family. Every man who cohabits with a woman without marriage and has a child is building a family. He's just building on the wrong foundation. And make no mistake about it, he is creating an atmosphere. The thing about these atmospheres that we create, they uh, encompass generations. They're handed down. They're passed on. Now, if it's negative, the Lord Jesus Christ can change a man and if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, old things pass away. And what happens then when the Spirit of God and the Word of God gets a hold of a guy, atmospheres change. You see, in a constructive atmosphere, it's real simple. People are built up. In a destructive atmosphere, people are torn down. You won't, you'll never amount to anything. Get out of my sight, you're worthless. That kind of thing. Sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. Nothing could be further from the truth. We recover from the sticks and stones and the broken arms, but the emotional wounds, 
Man, you can remember something for 80 years, can't you? The Father sets the atmosphere. As Christian men, we want to build a home that has a constructive atmosphere where people are built up. We want to have a long-term plan for leading our homes and leading our families. In order to do that, a man's first priority must be to love the Lord and then to love his wife. The Lord is first, then comes the wife, even before the kids. It's interesting if you look at Ephesians 6, 1, he speaks to the children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And then he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. What would provoke children to anger? Being treated unfairly, um, harsh discipline, abuse, uh, abuse can be spiritual. There are Christian fathers who abuse their families spiritually by uh, not listening, but by just quoting Bible verses instead of um, finding out what's going on and listening and getting inside their hearts. It's possible to be uh, too strict. It's possible to be too legalistic. Some of you were raised in homes and you couldn't wait, Christian homes, and you couldn't wait to get out. That's not how you want a father. That's not how you want a grandfather. We want a father and grandfather in such a way that they want to come back because it's a safe place. It's a good place. It's a healthy place. It's a fun place. You got to have some fun, guys. My dad wasn't perfect. Not by a long shot. The older I get, the more I appreciate my dad. He had great... The older I get, the more I see his faults. And he had them. I didn't see him when I was little, even when I got into adolescence. I, I, I saw him when I got older. This is what happens. But he had a lot of strengths. We, uh, my dad loved the Lord. He loved the Bible. He loved my mom. Sometimes he was, um, often he was impatient. Quite frankly, that's where I got it. It's his fault. <laughs> it runs in our family. For our men run to impatience. We're gifted at it. We are, uh, if there is an SAT score for irritability, we would be perfect. I'm just being honest with you. My dad was that way. I tend to be that way. I got to fight it. Sometimes it just sneaks up on me before I know what I'm doing. I'm irritable. I'm impatient. You got to go get it right then. But my dad loved the Lord. 
we get ready on Saturday night for church. Not, we wouldn't get ready Sunday morning. We'd get ready Saturday night. We'd watch Lawrence Welk, because we were Americans. <laughs> and even though in our church you couldn't dance, we'd watch them dance. Um, and then we'd start winding down and getting ready because we had church the next day. And we'd shine our shoes and we'd, it was different because we were going to church. And then we'd go to church. And as we're getting ready to go to church, my dad would turn on the radio and the Christian radio station would be on. And on the way, we'd listen to Charles Fuller in the old fashioned revival hour. Rudy Atwood would play the piano. Heavenly sunshine, heavenly sunshine. Filling my soul with glory divine. Heavenly sunshine. So I was raised. We weren't even at church yet. We'd already had church in the car. His wife would read the letters. Some of you guys remember this. That's how I was raised. Then we go to church, then we come home, we watch football. And then when the commercials came on, we played a game called Run Through the Line. And uh, my dad liked to watch football on the floor, the TV, and he would kind of, he'd lean, he'd lean like this. And then we were little guys, and I had two brothers, and we were just hanging all over him. And during the commercials, we'd play run through the line, and we had a small football. And what we would do is, the goal was, so three of us would line up on defense, and one of us would get the ball by the couch, and you had to get over to the chair. And there were lamps and everything. And my mom would come in and say, no, no, no. My dad said, come on. <laughs> and we'd play run through the line and tackle it. And we loved it. We loved it. I mean, we loved it. I played run through the line with my kids. I can remember them leaving and my mom saying, don't you dare play run through the line. <laughs> what did we do? We broke a lamp. We run through the line. Yeah. We didn't have an architectural digest living room. But man, we sure had fun. And we'd wrestle with my dad, and you know, he's a pretty big guy, but he was real careful with us. And he was teaching us even as we wrestled. And we were learning that, uh, uh, didn't even think about it at the time, but men, men, godly men have power over their power. Men have power. But you see, godly men, because of what Jesus has done in our hearts and because of his truth that he gives to us and he gives us instructions on how to love our families, men restrain themselves and men have power over their power. They're careful because they could do damage. And then we go back to church, Sunday night. And on the way home, we come home, we usually stop and get ice cream somewhere. And then we come home, and we went to bed, my dad had the radio on again, and we listened to C.M. Ward preach on revival time. And they closed by singing, there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. 
Oh, and before that, we listened to Billy Graham on Now Our Decision. That's how I was raised. I'm blessed. I really am. My mom and dad together, and my mom offset my dad. Because uh, sometimes he was hard to talk to. Now, I could talk with him, but he was intimidating. I could always talk to my mom, and they were a good team. They offset each other. You know? They were absolute opposites. I look back on it now, and it's just, it's just wild. But my dad loved my mom. Here's something I remember. Every Christmas, there would be a, we had the presents under the tree. My dad used to tell me about when he was a kid at Christmas. I remember him telling me they were so poor in the Depression, usually he would get an orange, but some years he would just get the orange peel. That's actually pretty funny, and it's probably close to the truth. Because his dad was a pastor in a little church with five kids, and there wasn't a lot happening in the Depression. But we'd have some presents. But there would be a really nice, larger present that was wrapped like something you'd see at a department store. I mean, that kind of wrapping. Nothing else was wrapped like that. We knew that was for my mom. Now, I've done that every Christmas for 41 years. Why? I saw it. It's just a way of giving honor. You see? I wouldn't have thought about it if it was just me, but... I knew that my dad loved my mom. Now, the reason I'm going into this, I think... Hopefully, there's a point here somewhere. In 6.1, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. Children are to know that commandment, honor your father and mother. But they are to be taught that by their own fathers. After saying, honor your father and mother so that it may be well with you, then he says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. You instruct not only by what you say, but by what you do. So back up, because the same context is Ephesians 5. In 525, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What I'm saying is, is that this is connected. What's in five when he speaks to husbands, that is connected to what he says in verse four to fathers who now have children. They are to teach their children to honor their father and mother, and the father is to demonstrate that by how he treats his wife. Do you see that? Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means you, what did Jesus do for the church? He took the hits. 
He got beat up. He got pummeled. He took the blows. Twenty-eight. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. <clears throat> we pointed out before, I, I, I hope you see the connection. We're, we're to model that. In Matthew 22, Jesus, uh, an attorney asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He asked, he asked the Lord to summarize the Ten Commandments, and Jesus reduced it to its lowest common denominator and took the ten to two, and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And the second is the same as the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Your wife is your neighbor. Your kids are your neighbor. Husbands are to love God first and then love their wives and love their children who are their neighbors. So a father models to his children how they can honor their mothers by loving his wife. Secondly, let's talk about, see, that's the construction of father, the constructiveness. That's how you build a house. You're not perfect. You're not without sin. You're, so there's got to be a lot of forgiveness. There's got to be a lot of confession. There's got to be a lot of honesty. You deal with your stuff. You got an open wound. Deal with it. Talk about it. Confess the sin one to another. Confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. Don't, don't let it foul and fester. Don't let it get infected. Don't let it get gangrene up the arm or the leg. Deal with the stuff. That's the church. The family's the first church. Secondly, let's talk about the corruption of fathering. In Ephesians 6, 4, there's a phrase. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fatherhood gets corrupted, and we provoke our children to anger. There are a whole lot of things that can provoke children to anger. A whole lot of things. Uh, now, let's say this. You know, kids are always saying that's not fair, that's not fair. Um, you, you, uh, you can't be manipulated by that. You love them the same, you, you, <laughs> you discipline them. I'm going to say the same, but you take into account their temperaments and their personalities because with one kid, they're just tough. You got another kid that's compliant. With one kid, you can spank them because they mouthed off. And then they'll just look at you and glare. Well, you haven't done your job. 
because there hasn't been a change of heart and there hasn't been a repentance. And if they're glaring, you better go back to work. Now, it's not pleasant, it's not fun, but they can't win. They have got to be taught to respect authority and obey authority. And I'll just leave it there. You don't always get it right, but you're trying and you ask God for help. And when you don't get it right, you ask for forgiveness. But you're looking, you don't have to get it right all the time. You're just, you just, you're, you're trying to develop a consistency. But if you got a hard-hearted kid, you're going to have to be tougher on them discipline-wise. Then you have another kid that's got a different personality, a different temperament, and all you got to do is raise an eyebrow, and they break down in tears. And they're remorseful, and they're, and they're genuinely sorry. So you see, you handle them differently, but you handle them. Right? Sure, that's just being a good dad. Different things affect different kids. But two major things I want to talk about tonight that corrupts fathering. Number one, in modern America, um, we see um, abandonment. Abandonment. I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to give you abandonment, and then I'm going to give you authoritarianism, which is tyranny. Let's talk about abandonment first. In 1995, David Blankenhorn came out with a book called Fatherless America. Incredible book. This is 95. The United States is becoming an increasingly fatherless society. A generation ago, an American child could reasonably expect to grow up with his or her father. Today, an American child can reasonably expect not to. Fatherlessness is now approaching a rough parody with fatherhood as a defining feature of American childhood. The astonishing fact is reflected in many statistics, but here are the two most important. Tonight, about 40% of American children will go to sleep in homes in which their fathers do not live. Now, if that was true in 95, where is it today? 40% in 95. Before they reach the age of 18, more than half of our nation's children are likely to spend at least a significant portion of their childhoods living apart from their fathers. Never before in this country have so many children been voluntarily abandoned by their fathers. Never before have so many children grown up without knowing what it means to have a father. Fatherlessness is the most harmful demographic trend of this generation. It is the leading cause of declining child well-being in our society. It is also the engine driving our most urgent social problems from crime to adolescent pregnancy to child sexual abuse to domestic violence against women. Yet, despite its scale and social consequences, fatherlessness is a problem that is frequently ignored or denied. But the temptations did not deny it. Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. Let's stand and sing that together. <laughs> 1972. Wall Street Journal today had a, quite an article on the temptations. And the song, Papa was a rolling stone. Here are the lyrics. It was the 3rd of September. That day I'll always remember. Yes, I will. Because that was the day that my daddy died. 
I never got a chance to see him, never heard nothing but bad things about him. Mama, I'm dependent on you to tell me the truth. And Mama just hung her head and said, son, Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And when he died, all he left us was alone. Hey, Mama, is it true what they say? That Papa never worked a day in his life? And Mama, some bad talk going around town saying that Papa had three outside children with another wife, and that ain't right. Heard them talking about Papa doing some storefront preaching. Talked about saving souls and all the time leeching, dealing in debt and stealing in the name of the Lord. Did you know that was in that song? Mama just hung her head and said, Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And when he died, all he left us was alone. What I found interesting in this article on the temptations in that song written in 72, it had been recorded by another group and was moderately successful. They decided to rework the song. And the original lyricist and the arranger the first guy was Barrett Strong, then Paul Reiser Sr., and then Otis Williams was one of the singers in The Temptations. They decided to rework the song. Uh, Barrett Strong says he got a call that Motown wanted to redo the song. And uh, he had a track he wanted me to listen to in order to put down some lyrics. Uh, he said he wanted lyrics that were fun and not serious so listeners would have a good time with it. But I listened over and over after Norman left. I didn't hear the music the way he did. There was something about that bass line. And if you get a chance, you can pull this up on the Wall Street Journal and they get the they, it's all there. It really helps us make sense. There was something about the bass line that spoke to me. Nope, no singers, no lyrics. It was the sound of someone confused about something and they were trying to make sense of it. The more I listened, I recalled kids whose fathers had abandoned their mothers coming to me for advice. They didn't understand why it had happened or how they could deal with it. Even though I was little, I was wise like an old man. My father was a minister. He would talk to me about life situations like that all the time. His story stayed with me. One day a friend from across the street was at my back door crying. He wanted to know why his daddy wasn't around. I knew the reason, but I had to say something to calm him down and I said, your papa's just a rolling stone. Rolling stone was a phrase used all the time in my neighborhood going back to the 50s. It meant a guy who couldn't settle down even if he had a wife and kids. It was from the old proverb, a rolling stone gathers no moss. And then he started putting the song together. His dad was a minister. His dad talked with him. His dad was connected to him. His dad explained life to him. And even though he was just a little guy, his friends would seek him out, but he, he had wisdom beyond his years. Why? He had a father who was anchored in this book and it had been passed on. 
I don't usually quote the United Nations. I'll give you one sentence out of an article on the Bloomberg website, a poll that the United Nations did. 40% of all births in the United States now occur outside of wedlock, up from 10% in 1970. All right, let's stop for a minute. So in 1970, you got 10% births out of wedlock. Papa was a Rolling Stone was written in 72. Now we're at 40%. See, what this is, is the demise of marriage. So we got fatherless America and we got marriageless America. What's happening? We're abandoning the truth. We're abandoning the Ten Commandments, which God said in Deuteronomy 4, are for you and your children to give you a better life than the alternative. Fatherlessness and children out of wedlock, it doesn't do anybody any favors, does it? No, it doesn't. You see, that's the corruption of fathering. There's some background to Ephesians 6.4. In our culture, fathering has been corrupted by abandonment. In the book, he goes on and talks about it used to be that children would lose their fathers because of death. It's easier on a child whose father dies than it is on a f- child whose father abandons. Because the child whose father dies gets closure because it's part of life, is to die. They can come to grips with it eventually. They will get closure. Abandonment, they tend not to get closure. It remains an issue all of their lives. The second corruption of fathering is not in modern America. It was in the Roman Empire. And the early Christians were surrounded by this. It was authoritarianism. It was tyranny of fathers. So William Barclay, who does a great job on history, not a good job on doctrine or theology, He says this about the Roman Empire in which Christians were surrounded in regard to fathering. He's going to make three points. First of all, there was the Roman patria potestas, which was the father's power. Under the patria potestas, a Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in the fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his own hands, and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. Further, the power of the Roman father extended over the child's entire life as long as the child lived. A Roman son never came of age. Even when he was a grown man, even if he might be a magistrate of the city, even if the state had crowned him with well-deserved honors, he still remained within his father's absolute power. 
It's true that while the father's power was seldom carried to its limits because public opinion would not have allowed it, but the fact remains that there are perfectly historical instances of a Roman father condemning his son to death and executing him. The fact remains that in the time of Paul, the child was completely and absolutely in his father's power. That's tyranny. That's authoritarianism. That's not what God teaches. That concept does not come from the Ten Commandments. That concept does not come from the Scripture. Secondly, there was the custom of child exposure. When a child was born, it was placed before the father's feet, and if the father stooped and lifted the child, that meant that the father acknowledged the child and wished the child to be kept. If he turned and walked away, it meant that he refused to acknowledge the child, and the child could quite literally be thrown out. You want to read an interesting book, read Intellectuals by Paul Johnson. He talks about the heroes of the left, of the radicals. He traces a lot of them to Paris, the ideas of the French Revolution. A lot of them were educated. There are more mass murderers that come out of, is, that, that, is it the Sorbonne? Sorbonne? In, in um, Paris, uh, Pol Pot studied there. More mass murderers come out of there than anywhere else. What he does, he talks about these, uh, and, and you'll pay 80000 a year to send your kid to a university to get indoctrinated with this stuff, which is counter to the scripture, and they'll study these great philosophers. He says, well, here are their lives. Here's what they said, but here's how they lived. Uh, Rousseau was a great favorite. Rousseau uh, had a lot of children, but when the child was born to various women, he would, in the dark of night, take it down and leave that child at the steps of a church. Never thought about it again. He wanted his sexual license and his sexual freedom. Uh, third thing. Ancient civilization was merciless to the sickly or the deformed child. Seneca writes as if it was the commonest practice in the world, as indeed it was, quote, we slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge the knife into sickly cattle lest they taint the herd. Children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. But we do that in America. We abort them, and now there's a movement on euthanasia for children. Have you read about the law they want to pass in Canada on euthanizing children? I mean, and, and why would we not stop? If I'm not mistaken, I think it's Peter Singer who is the ethicist at Princeton who has for years said that children should not be considered as viable human beings I want to say, I'm going to say until they are two years old. But I actually think it's four. He wrote that years ago. I mean, if you can kill them in the womb, why can't you kill them outside the womb? This movie is out. Gosnell? Gosnell? You hear anything about it in the press? You hear anything? No, no. The guy's the greatest mass murderer in American history. 
He'd take those alive babies and he'd take scissors and just cut their spinal cord. This is where we are. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any nation. All right. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Let's get to the third. This is the correction to fathering. You had the corruption. Now let's get to the correction. The correction is returning to what God says in his moral law. Andreas Kostenberger has done a great book called God, Marriage, and Family. And I'm not going to read a lot of this, just a little bit to give you a taste. What I want to do is give you a contrast between Rome. The Christians were surrounded by this stuff. We're surrounded by this stuff. It gets overwhelming. By the way, um, they stood for the truth. They didn't compromise their principles. Uh, Many of them were martyred, but eventually Christianity outlasted the Roman Empire. And to this day, Christianity survives. And it will always survive. Colossians 1. Colossians 1 says, the gospel is always increasing. And he shall reign forever and ever. Kostenberger has a section on marriage and family that goes back to ancient Israel. He has a section called the roles and responsibility of fathers. Here's what he says. I'll give you just a little bit of this. This is so practical and it's so good. You know, a bad word today is patriarchy. It means that fathers rule. My gosh, that'll send feminists up the wall. It can't be, there's no good patriarchy. Well, it depends on who the patriarch is. God is a father. That's pretty good if he's your father. You get a man who loves Jesus and loves the scriptures and has a humble heart and loves his wife. And he's a father. Uh, and by the way, he's been a, fathers have been assigned to rule in the home. Ephesians 5, the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. And we are to lead as Jesus led. We are to love as Jesus loved. Um, Jesus gave himself up for the church. It's a sacrificial love. Jesus didn't do what was best for him. He did what was best for us. Philippians 2, even though he existed as God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, so he laid aside his privileges. He became the God-man. He was still God, but he became man. Amazing. And what did he do? He came, and he who knew no sin became sin for us. He didn't do what was best for us. He did what was best. I mean, he didn't do what was best for him. He did what was best for us. He sacrificed himself. That's how we are to lead our families. It's a loving, humble, gracious leadership, but we are to lead. Now, there are two extremes that you can go to. Some guys get real passive and they turn into wusses. And they're dominated by their wives. You can't do that. You can't do that. If you're doing it, you're in sin. 
You are responsible to God for your home. And you've got to man up. And you need God's wisdom. She's a, she's a very strong woman. Great. I love strong women. Uh, you can't let her do it. Um, you just can't. And you might need some help and you might need some advice from godly friends, but you cannot let that continue. Every home has a tribal chief, Jim Dobson used to say. And everybody knows who the tribal chief is. And if you're the father, it better be you. And you love her enough that you do not let her dominate or rule. And because of the curse, back in Genesis, she wants to usurp authority. I probably shouldn't have gotten into that because I don't have time to deal with it. But it's, it's the battle of the ages. You see? So the first mistake men can make, instead of having level, humble, loving, humble you know, leadership in the home, as Jesus did, now he, he led, they turn into wusses. The other side is to turn into a tyrant, an authoritarian, a Saddam Hussein. Okay, now I said that to read this section. Contrast this with what happened in ancient Rome, the absolute power of the father. In Israel, like the spokes of a wheel, family life radiated outward from the father at its center. The community was built around the father and bore his stamp in every respect. Also, while the father indisputably ruled his household, the Old Testament rarely focuses on his power. Rather than functioning as a despot or a dictator in healthy households, the father and husband usually inspired the trust and security of its members. How did he inspire the trust and security of its members? By being trustworthy. They got to know him. They got to know his character. They saw the love. They saw the concern. They saw the care. The whole idea of a husband is to take care. Animal husbandry is the breeding and care of animals. Crop husbandry is the care of crops, crop rotation, fertilization, all those things. There's all kinds of different husbandries, but husbandry is to take care. Some guys think to be a husband is to take over. Some guys think to be a husband is to um, take advantage. Some guys get frustrated and they think they'll just take off. But see, husbands take care. They are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, for us. Hence, it was not primarily the power and privileges associated with the father's position, but rather the responsibilities associated with his headship that were emphasized. Completely different than Rome. This guy led by being responsible. This guy led by loving and being responsible and doing the next right thing. That's Christian leadership. Oh, I'm the head of the family. I'm the shut up. (laughs) 
You follow me, Paul said, as I follow Christ. Fathers had responsibility, and he lists them. They were, first of all, to personally model strict personal commitment to Yahweh, to love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. They were to lead the family in national festivals. In other words, take your family to church. Turn on the radio. Listen to those podcasts together. He was to instruct the family in the traditions of the Exodus and the scriptures. In regard to the son, the father was to name the children together with their wives. He was to consecrate the firstborn sons to God. He was to circumcise the sons on the eighth day. He was to delight in, have compassion on, and love the sons, nurturing the son's spiritual development, instructing them in the way of wisdom. That's Proverbs 1 through 9. There's more, but let's talk about daughters. His responsibilities to his daughters were to protect his daughters from male predators so that they would marry as virgins, thus bringing honor to his name and purity to their husband. That was a lot easier to do back in that day than it is in our day. Just because everything's changed. You understand that. He was to arrange for his daughter's marriage by finding a suitable husband and making proper arrangements. Oh, how old-fashioned. Oh, that's just ridiculous. Oh, that's just so out of date. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And look how well we're doing. That's such a huge decision. You know what's great is when your kids ask your counsel on that. And what's heartbreaking is when they don't. It's all under the sovereignty. But you're there when they do ask. It may be down the road. And God turns it all to good. To those who love him and are called according to his purpose. They were to ensure a measure of security for daughters by providing a dowry, Genesis 29. He was to protect his daughters from rash vows. Numbers 30, if a daughter made a rash vow, the father uh, could cancel it. He was to provide security for his daughter in case their marriage failed. How else would she have any security? And he was to instruct his daughters in the scriptures. You see how different that is than Rome? You see how different that is from Islam? We said this at the beginning, that the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, are based in the character of God. And the more we get to know him, and the more we walk with him, and the more that we are in the scriptures with teachable hearts, the more we become slowly conformed to the image of Christ. What's interesting is that one day you're young and the next week you're old. It goes fast. Psalm 90 is for the days of our lives they contain 70 or due to strength 80 years. But soon it is gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Final word.
Titus 2.2 is a good word for you if you're an older man. Now, how do we define an older man? You're an older man if you're older today than you were a year ago. In Israel, you were not considered an adult male until you hit the age of 20. So there are levels of aging. But in Titus 2, we read this. And this applies to all men who follow Christ, whether you're a father, whether you're a grandfather or not. There are instructions given to older men that apply to every one of us. Titus 2.2 says this. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older men are to be temperate. That means sober. That means a restraint in indulging desires. A lot of guys in here used to be drunks. A lot of guys used to be addicts. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were given a new heart. And you have learned principles in Scripture. He who walks with wise men will be wise. The two are stronger than one. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So you walk with life, not through, you walk through life, not by yourself, but with others. There's an accountability, and we look out for each other. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We're all prone to wander. We're all prone and beset with weaknesses. So we need help with being sober in different ways, restraining. Uh, older men are to be dignified. That means uh, gravitas. As you get older, there, there is a, from experience and from getting beat up and making mistakes and repenting and learning the truth of Christ, and there is a, um, there is a leveling out. You've got your feet on the ground. You're not all over the map. There's a stability. They are to be sensible. That means they're self-controlled as they make plans, as they make decisions, not rash, not impulsive. Maybe that's how it used to be, but now in an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. Hey, man, we're all in process, but we can grow. See? This is what we're shooting for, and this is what God does in our lives. Sound, healthy, in faith, in love, in relationships, in perseverance, in steadfastness. You lead your family morally. You lead your family spiritually. You lead your family by being emotionally connected, by providing, by protecting. And we're all in the process of learning. And whether you know it or not, you're having an impact. I talked with a gentleman recently who was in prison for a long time. 
he really didn't come to know the Lord. He was a church guy, but really didn't come to know the Lord until he was in prison. And one day he was literally overcome by the love of God and was born again. He had some mentors outside the prison that he was in touch with, and they encouraged him to memorize scripture. And then he worked with a chaplain, and he started working with other young believers who had come to Christ in prison. And he was telling me about one guy in particular that he started meeting with. And the guy had a horrible background, horrible father, horrible situation. He said, when you get out, you can go ahead and get that high school degree. And if you want, you can go to trade school or college. You find a good church. And you'll get instructed by a, a pastor and godly men. And you start walking with wise men. And you'll find a wife. And he kind of cast a vision for this guy. And he worked with him for a number of years. The guy was released. And about five years later, the guy showed up at his house, introduced himself to his wife. Now, my friend was still in prison. And said to the wife, I want to tell you what an impact your husband had on me. And he introduced his wife. And he had an excellent job and had finished his degree, had his children. And this guy all the time was sitting back, still in his jail cell, had no clue. Until his wife got the word to him. And then he heard from the guy. And he thought he was making no difference. There are no little people in no little places. You don't have to be overwhelmed, guys. God's building his church, and he's doing it through his men. Let's pray. So, Father, we all fall short. We need your grace and mercy. And we have it in full abundance. We have many issues. We have many concerns. We have fears. We have worries, but we cast them all upon you because you care for us. We are learning to trust you. And in the process, we are being used by you in a very dark world. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.